Covalent Bonds. In honor of 22 Jump Street, what's the best meta moment in a film? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Basil Exposition from Austin Powers. It's not the best joke in the movie, but it's the first really meta one that makes you think the movie is a little bit smarter than poop jokes, which it mostly is. Also, it's due for a revisitation. I think we should get on that. Hey, it's Dave with the Seven, the entirety of The Tingler, an interactive theater horror movie about monsters that can only be kept away by your screams. And that was just the beginning. You should Google it. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Spaceballs, the moment where uh, they rent Spaceballs on VHS. When does this happen in the movie? Now. Everything that happens now is happening now. I am not going to continue that bit, but it is glorious. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 26 for Tuesday, June 10th, 2014. And now Dave with some housekeeping. Hi, you might have noticed our feed has been going slowly because we got super popular and that meant long download times. But if you go to fightinginthewarroom.com, we're also going to have active SoundCloud links, which are on different servers where you can stream and download the episode. Please stay subscribed because we love those numbers and hearing from you on our review page. But uh, we want to get it to you as fast as possible and we're going to make that happen until we get all our issues resolved. Obvious Child, a movie directed by Julian Robespierre. I'm sure there's a French way to say uh, actually, that. Actually, you, you screw up the first name. It's Gillian Robespierre. Oh, man, really? I, I believe it. <laughs> All right. Gillian Robespierre uh, and starring Jenny Slate. It's called Obvious Child. And it's a comedy that debuted at the Sundance Film Festival, Patches. I believe you saw it there and raved about it. I did. I was, I was the real tastemaker for this one. Yeah, exactly. Patches has been leading the charge on this. Um, I caught up with it a couple weeks ago. Jenny Slate is familiar. Uh, a lot of people still say she's most familiar for saying fuck on SNL, which I think is a shame since that really is such a minor thing to happen to somebody. She is. I, I interviewed her for this movie and posted it somewhere, either Twitter or Facebook, and someone was like, is this the girl who said F you on, on SNL? I'm like, you don't even watch Saturday Night Live. Why, why are you – how do you know this? And why is well, this the she's, lasting she's memory? Not- She's not the breakout character from Parks and Rec, even though she's really good on it. So Yeah, that's true. She's Mona Lisa Saperstein on Parks and Rec. I don't think uh, she's, she's really done... had a breakout except for Marcel, Marcel... the Shell. Yeah, Marcel the Shell with the Shoes On is her uh, web short. That's I think it, there's been two books, or there are about to be two books, which is kind of insane. Good for her. Anyway, uh, this is her first starring role in a movie, and she plays you know what's going to sound like a familiar character. It's like a twenty-something Brooklyn woman who's doing. St- well, I guess the stand-up comedy thing isn't necessarily familiar. Anyway, she plays someone who you can imagine is very similar to Jenny Slate herself, a twenty late twenties Brooklyn woman doing stand-up comedy. She has one night stand with this guy who's kind of oh, he, he was the replacement Jim on The Office. Like, what was what's the actor's name? Patrick, do you know it offhand? Uh, Jake Lacey plays her yeah. boyfriend. He was uh, he was new Jim date. on The Office, which I think says a lot about his appeal. He's kind of tall and gangly and nice and wears khakis in a Brooklyn bar, which, uh, as Matt Patches would know, immediately sets you apart from the rest of the crowd. Oh yes. 
Um, so she goes home with him, has a one night stand, and then finds out she is pregnant. And uh, she has pregnant. She has. She I has said, pregnant. pregnant. She she has with pregnant. Um, and plans to get an abortion, and it's basically about what happens from there. And she did an interview. Matt Patch is not the only person who interviewed her. She did an interview for uh, Vanity Fair and talked about how it's not a hipster's romantic comedy, which I think is it's an easy thing to say because it's set in Brooklyn. It's about stand-up comedy. It's you know it's got all these kind of hip comedic faces in it, but it's a really traditional rom-com in a lot of ways. It's got familiar beats. You're really rooting for this couple to get together, and the obstacles they're facing, aside from the fact that she plans to get an abortion, are really traditional, which I think is what makes this movie so good. It's not trying too hard to be edgy or kind of even treating the subject of abortion like it's anything pushing an envelope. It's just, you know, what it really is, which is a choice that she is able to make. And it, you know, sets up this really interesting conflict between her and this guy, basically because she is failing to tell him that she is pregnant and that is what she plans to do. Uh, And I like the way that it combines that straightforward attitude of the rom-com, which we're all familiar with, with really funny jokes and really interesting characters and people kind of making blatantly bad decisions of the variety we don't see in romantic comedies usually. And uh, Patches, you saw it as well. You liked it. Is that... I love this movie. This is definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. And at some point, we should go back to the part of this conversation where you insinuate that I wear khakis and like polo shirts to bars in Brooklyn. (laughs) I didn't say polo shirts. I just said and embarrass myself or something like that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that really did hit home. But you know, I, I was afraid that after Sundance, people would kind of write off Obvious Child as this girls knockoff or just another hipster story. But I find it very universal, and uh, and very, but and while being very individual too, like this feels very specific and character oriented. No one, not many people, could be this perfect for the role uh, than Jenny Slate, who is well, very well. It was written for her. Well, which, yeah, it was uh, written for her, but it's not her. It's not just her. It's no. not like Louie walking around yeah. and having these observations and turning them into episodes. This is a character she's playing, someone who's very vulnerable and being challenged by the world and not in the conventional ways, you know, if if this isn't like Juno, should I have the baby? Should I not have the baby? No, she's going to get an abortion and, you know, the there are hurdles that come with that decision no matter what. And I find that low-key nature very appealing, especially when paired with her vulgar sense of humor. I mean, the the... Her comedy is so dirty in this, and I just love on both her doing the stand-up and just having conversations with friends. It makes it more realistic to me, and I guess I just have vulgar conversations with people in real life, and that that also hits home. When I'm wearing khakis at the bars, I'm talking about disgusting things. Well, you're not supposed to be the vulgar one in this scenario. You're supposed to be the guy, the nice guy in the khakis. That's true. I'm a little both. But you can keep up. I'm a little both, uh... yeah. Yeah, I mean, she has a uh, a gay best friend played by Gabe Liedman, who is also a comic, who is a, you know kind of takes part in the dirty talk. But he and Gabby Hoffman have a couple of scenes with her where it's just it, the dialogue is just really good, and maybe some of it's improvised by them. But you believe that it's kind of gross, frank talk you would have with your closest friends, but not show offy. It's not like you get the feeling that these are people who are like, I'm going to say this shocking thing to make you think I'm hilarious. Like there's there's such a fine line to walk there between people you believe you could hang out with and the kind of people that you know when you try to avoid and the way that they make these people characters who can talk that way. I mean, it's really credit to Jillian Ribspear who made this movie that she can capture those voices in it. Well, that's that's what I like about it. You know, we're in this time when anyone can make a movie and there's a lot of minimalist kind of improv your way through a movie that grew out of 
out of mumblecore and the Austin scene and, and the New York. New York has its mumblecore faction. This is not one of those movies, I don't think. This is this is even more hyper-personalized than an episode of Girls or something like For me, um, this is distinct. And, and I, I think rounding it out with really strong, like even the supporting cast feels very vibrant to me. Uh, Gabby Hoffman, who is now the staple of every independent film in the last two years, seems like, um, plays... And who has never worn out her welcome. Yeah, I know. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) She seems to fit in all these worlds because she's the most natural person and she can be very vicious in her comedic presence and also very tragic in her dramatic presence. Um, And she's able to recount stories, like just be a great friend and not try and steal the spotlight from Jenny Slate while amplifying what's going on in the scene. There's a scene where she talks about you know, um, Donna, who is Jenny Slate's character, talks about, oh, did you ever regret having an abortion? Because she had had one, too. Um, and Gabby Hoffman's character says, no, I've never regret it, but I think about it like once a week. And I thought that was very poignant. And they're having real conversations about this topic that's very much part of the conversation for young people. It's it's happening. We, you can't deny it. You know, Planned Parenthood actually uh, helped them shoot in an actual Planned Parenthood facility, which yeah, I think is Yeah, cool. it's kind of surprising when you realize that they're in a real Planned Parenthood because I don't know when I've seen a Planned Parenthood in a movie that wasn't after Tiller. Right, oh, yeah, exactly. So it doesn't <laughs> have to be surrounded by tragedy. It's It needs to be kind of mundane. Um, and even when Donna goes to Planned Parenthood, she faces this kind of like weird stigma, this embarrassment. Uh, the the person interviewing her has to ask her if she wants to do it. You know, there's other options. Let me tell you all about the other options. That's hard, you know. You've made your decision, mm-hmm. and people keep insisting to you that there are other ways to go about doing this. Um, and that's that's the drama here, and that's what tugs at your heartstrings. Uh, and I've been very, you know, I get scared. Um, watching a movie like this go into the public, something that I've had with me since January and I've been vocal about loving and really wanting to get people to see this. And then it goes out into the real world and suddenly there's all sorts of conservative blogs writing about how it's the abortion comedy and oh everyone's are laughing. there are you reading i like reading drugs yes on this? Why, I are you doing why am that? i doing why? that why am i doing that and you know i know that the people listen to the show we have a spectrum of uh opinions i'm sure on that subject but like this is a movie that's trying to be grounded and realistic and not political it's about humans and the decisions we make and when we've made them, how that how that affects us, that continues to be challenging, even when you decide to have an abortion. And that's what I love about Obvious Child, that it can be funny and sad. There's an amazing scene with this actress, Polly Draper, who plays yeah. her mom and her mom so is very good. overbearing. Um, but then they <laughs> open up to each other in this one scene. I just think it's like one of the best supporting performances I've seen all year that really doesn't take a lot. You know, it's not flashy or it's not a big clashing moment but you know it's an admission it's being true and this movie is so full of truth i think there's something to this and i don't i wouldn't really compare much of this to nicole hall of center but when you brought up uh polly draper's supporting performance i think there's something to that about how the characters in nicole hall of center movies really start to evolve and there's someone who you think is in one role and then they get one scene to kind of emerge into something else and i think that might be the root of why you and i both like this movie so much is she's kind of taken what's great about nicole hall of center movies and uh put it in her own voice no absolutely and uh, again it's like it's exactly 
the writer director being herself and and putting her thoughts out into the world and of course the reactions are like oh this female centric movie or this um you know finally women can break through and make a movie like this and i'm i'm just so ready for that conversation to be over um for every movie that's wonderful and poignant and smart and hilarious to stop being framed in a way that it has to be like oh a woman did it you know, congrats, you broke through. No, I mean, they, they do this all the time. You just have to watch them. Um, now, someone please hire Gillian Robespierre to direct Ant-Man. Ant-Man, oh uh, yeah, perfect. I mean, couldn't we give her Captain Marvel? I don't want to saddle a woman with a woman's <laughs> thing. Is, I'm just... This is definitely how the conversation has to end, because Dave is here, so now... <laughs> Well, I, yeah. I wanted to actually, I wanted to actually contribute something yes, that was not who should direct Ant Man. Okay, because we know who's going to direct Ant Man, but that's not important. <clears throat> I think that what Patch is really saying is interesting, and that's actually the first argument about the truth, and I, to a certain degree, the realness. I don't know if we could use that as a term, but I think that's what he was sort of reaching for, um, and that that's where these sort of issues where we could start to have conversations with people that we love, but also have very different opinions from us are at pivot points like this. We talked about it with cosmos mm. and it sounds like this could also be an enjoyable piece of entertainment, but also something that you and somebody that you don't necessarily agree with on this issue can find common ground in the realness of, and that will, I think break you loose of how the media covers these things, which is sort of black and white. You are, you aren't, you're conservative, or you're liberal, but yeah, movies, man. I love them. Yeah. I think uh, even if you have watched a lot of girls and think you're over women in Brooklyn, uh, this is kind of, this is incredibly different from girls. It happens to be set in the same borough, but that's really. Yeah. I don't think Obvious Child is lost in its, its navel here. This is not a hipster movie. This is not necessarily a movie about Brooklyn. It just happens to be there because there's such a concentration of all these dynamics. Um, but this is a movie about everybody in the country, everybody in the world. So, and there's a great <laughs> dance scene to Paul Simon's Obvious Child, which you will not yeah. want to miss. Yeah, go see Obvious Child. It is, uh, it's really worth it. Obviously. Or show my appreciation to the fathers. You know, I hear a lot of rappers say or brag about not having kids. Well, guess what? I do. So I'd like to send this record out to all the daddies, you know, the real daddies, taking care of shit. This one's for the skateboarders, MCs, B-boys like me, street artists. For our mini segment in, the on- in honor of the upcoming Father's Day holiday, we wanted to quickly recommend movies to you all that are fathers like. I have to go buy We've my a- dad a present right now because I had no idea that. Father's Day you're, was up. You're the only person who, uh, in our family podcast, you had your dad on. That's true. Uh, That's so true. maybe we should start with you, because our listeners know Rod Patches. I know. He's a legend. Good old Rod Patches. Um, well, as you know, I was going to pick uh, U2 in 3D, the movie that blew my dad's mind. I, re- I vividly remember my dad seeing U2 in 3D back in what? I think like 2007. And he was he like lost his mind over the 3D. He also likes U2, which I don't know if I, I should reveal that because some people might be judgmental. But the real movie that I want to recommend that I talked to my dad about that he seems to have really enjoyed, um, so other dads may appreciate it, uh, is Let the Fire Burn, a documentary from last year. I think I mentioned that in the uh, end of yeah, the year roundups that. that we did. Uh, my dad finally caught this because this movie is on Netflix. Watch instantly now. 
And I think as a Philadelphian, he was particularly uh, dumbfounded by the actions that occur in this documentary. Um, it's basically, it's about the 1985 standoff between this kind of, they're, they're labeled an extremist group, but really they're just, they're just cool guys. No, uh, move this move group. That's like a back to nature thing. And they lived in a, in a townhouse in Philadelphia and, you know, racial tension. It was an all black. Well, it wasn't all black. It was an African roots group. There were some white people in it. Um, but they, they started scaring the Philadelphia government and the authorities. So after a while, they started boarding up their windows and taking AK-47s, not loaded. They weren't loaded uh, to the roof and kind of patrolling. They could have been loaded. That's the question mark that scared the Philadelphia police and the, the, the mayor at the time um, enough that they decided to bomb the ha uh, townhouse and burn it to the ground. Thus, let the fire burn. Not the the people. the The fire department wouldn't put out the fires caused by this bomb. The bomb actually missed the house, and um, all the people in move actually did have guns that were firing, so that they would not allow the firemen to put out the fires. And the whole block burned to the ground. It's a great political story. It's a horrifying political story, uh, and I think my, it made my dad wonder if there was anybody in the right uh, when it came to this situation. And uh, I don't. I don't think he believes there was, unfortunately. So riveting documentary. I mentioned it before, but now that it's on Netflix Instant, I would highly recommend people give it the time. It's all found footage, which I think is very interesting approach to telling the story. No, no talking heads or anything. All archival, um, and it's and it's quite riveting. All right, I have a good recommendation to follow up that because it's completely different. Uh, my dad does not watch a ton of movies. He loves The Magnificent Seven, but I feel like that's a classic dad movie. My dad really loves rom-coms. He will watch Sleepless in Seattle or Two Weeks Notice or The Proposal or uh, anything else wow. he might wander by to find on television. He loves the Lindsay Lohan Parent Trap, which is less of a rom-com. Uh, <laughs> can he do, can he do the handshake from Lindsay Lohan's Parent Trap? That's the big question. I don't know. I mean, I know that he loves Natasha Richardson and is still sad mm. about her dying. So there's that attachment. Um, actually, you know what? I was going to recommend Sleepless in Seattle. But no, Lindsay Lohan Parent Trap. I think that needs it more. My dad loves that movie. That movie is completely delightful. Uh, Natasha Richardson and Dennis Quaid are the parents that you want to have, and Lindsay Lohan was incredibly talented. So watch that movie. Someone My was just talking about, I don't know where I read this, but like how horrifying the parent trap is when you really think about it. How, how they split those kids yeah, up. Yeah, they split the kids up. Like, you'll yeah, never see your sister decision. again. We're going different ways. Yeah. We each get one of you. Well, They're they like were cats. like babies. <laughs> they were babies. They didn't know they had sisters. Yeah, but that's traumatizing, right? They're eventually going to no. find out what, what parents think that this is not going to end poorly. I mean... They're not pets. But if they don't wind up at the same camp, they'll never know. Yeah, Patches, suspend your disbelief. I'm sorry. This was this is a Nancy Myers movie before Nancy Myers went straight to hell. So I guess uh, wow. it was it was a Are sign, it was a signal. I'm pretty sure my dad also liked it's complicated, Oof. so you leave him alone. I don't uh, know if he's I don't know if he's seen it. Dave, what about your dad? Hey listeners, does your father like Star Trek as much my, as my father likes Star Trek? If so, perhaps Star Trek First Contact is the movie you could share with him like I share with my family. 
because it's this weird Star Trek The Next Generation cast movie where Generations came out and it did okay, but it was obvious that there was sort of just hardcore Trek fans there to see like the character actors and not necessarily any of the stories that Gene Roddenberry want to tell. So they made the Borg zombies and they have... Uh, Zephyrin Co- Cochran doing First Contact and being like sort of a drunken person and he's somebody that you'd sort of heard of in Star Trek history but never saw. Anyway, my parents dragged me to like the Cineplex in what year was it? 1996. A good three or four times to see this movie and it's still something that we could all put on and not argue with. If your dad isn't into Star Trek and you're perhaps a young boy and you want to bond with your father... Nothing's better than sitting down to watch 1957's The Bridge on the River Kwai for all the stereotypical male reasons and Alec Guinness awesomeness. Serious question. When is Jonathan Frakes going to make another movie? Um, well, he directed an episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So oh, it, yeah, he does. Wow, it was you, just, had, it you was had that an, answer, like, ready. Well, I mean, I have a kind pin of, of Jonathan, Jonathan Frakes that it's like a pin that it's a Riker pin, but they cut out his uniform, so there's nothing that differentiates it from just the Jonathan Frakes fan <laughs> pin, and I wear it around a lot. I, I, I thought you were going to say you had a Jonathan Frakes Google alert. I kind of like clock stoppers, and I, I have yeah. a soft spot for Thunderbirds, but I only that's because I like Thunderbirds, the show. Anyway, he seems like a fun a fun person <laughs> slash director. I wouldn't want him to do anything like huge franchise that I love, but you know, I'm interested to see what his personal story would be. Something about trombone. Jonathan probably. Frakes for Ant Man. Wow, he was in all, all of those Noah Wiley National Treasure knockoffs. It's called mm, the, librarian, the Librarian, and there's a new show coming on called The Librarians, and Jonathan Frakes directed the pilot, so maybe back off. Wait, so it's like a spinoff? Yeah. I think Noah Wild is like handing the torch to someone in the first episode, but it's definitely oh, it's man. basically um, oh god one of those awful Sam Raimi syndicated shows. It's it's like Jack of all trades with Bruce Campbell, but with the librarians. <laughs> Frank Frank's connaissance. Where did we go with this conversation? <laughs> uh, it's a gurney season. Everything's crazy. In the nighttime, I watch the day's events on my TV set. I spent my whole life watching images that come made of shit. 88 killed in a wreck on all the channels and all the presets. Is there a way out? Or maybe something else on? Ain't my life faded always? The same thing on every night. Ain't it pretty how life You may not have noticed this if you don't read trade sites or get publicist emails, but it is Emmy campaign season. <laughs> the nominations don't go out until July. Those um, people are lucky. I... Those people who don't do either of those things are very lucky. Yeah, that's You true. might not notice this unless you're us. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people will probably read The Hollywood Reporter and see various ads. I mean, there's a Brooklyn Nine-Nine food truck that's been driving around Los Angeles, and there's various things going on. If you see interviews with people who are on television shows that aren't currently airing, it's because it's Emmy season. And with all of this talk in the air, uh, at least in Dave's office, everyone's talking about television from the year. We realize that there's a lot of shows that we've been watching over the last year or so that we haven't necessarily talked about on the show. And I kind of thought this would be a good opportunity for a uh, kind of a fighting in the war room for your consideration. Like things that we have liked over the last years, things we thought were worth talking about that maybe the rest of the podcast didn't necessarily watch that we couldn't get to. And Dave, 
what I really want to hear you talk about. Yeah. I, I, first of all, giant caveat: we're going to talk about Game of Thrones next week once the season is over. So don't yell at us for not talking about Game of Thrones. As you may know, if you listen to Dave's spinoff podcast, we care greatly about the show around here. Um, but we'll get there. And it's been a really interesting season for people who just generally care about TV and uh, who care about all the adaptations on television. And Joanna Robinson just tried to call me. That was weird. I apologize. Well, did you say Game of Thrones and she just called you? Yeah, that's that's weird. I guess I can summon her like Beetlejuice. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so I wanted to start with you because your discussions about Hannibal have been really interesting. And you're the only person who I talk to on a regular basis who watches what I think has become a really critically lauded show kind of out of nowhere. Like it seemed like all of a sudden the people who were watching it this past season were like, wow, this is amazing. So can you catch me up on why this has been such a big deal? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it was a big deal sort of because it's a big, been a big deal recently because it got renewed for its third season. And Brian Fuller, the showrunner has never gotten a third season before. And he's done great things like pushing, daisies and wonderfalls and things that a lot of people are fans of he wrote the best stuff on heroes for a little while and then they were like we're bringing him back and that sort of ruined his career for a bit because he went down with the ship there but um what he's been doing has been adapting thomas harris's red dragon which is the first hannibal lecter novel uh that has the character of will graham that's hunting him down and has sort of expanded that since those are the only characters he has rights to he sort of pitched this grand vision for a seven-season Hannibal that has now become a six-season Hannibal as he's been going through it. And the first season was an adaptation of basically one or two paragraphs in Red Dragon, and they sort of spun that out into a full television show. And then the second season um, did this that just ended did this really interesting flip where Will Graham, the detective, actually goes into the mental institution first. So, like, the first image you have in this second season premiere is Hannibal going to visit somebody in the cell that he's eventually going to be kidnapped in. So, essentially, it's taking the adaptation of these movies and rededicating them to the book in a way that it uses sort of artful photography of really horrible horrors and the way it's sort of based around this psychology of a world where a serial killer gets bored and finds another serial killer to play with. And I've never seen a adaptation period mess around with the plot but keep so much of just the atmosphere and still make it feel like an adaptation. So what we're seeing on screen has different a lot from the books and someone who's read all the Thomas Harris books I've noticed, but it always feels like Thomas Harris is a executive producer on the show, even though he isn't because Brian Fuller is doing this very careful adaptation. And so that's why Hannibal's been really, really interesting and might be the best show that was on this season, but it's definitely in the contenders. No wonder no one watches this show. It sounds, I mean, it's too well produced. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it's definitely this like weird fever dream lyrical thing it's all about psychiatrists all the characters are psychiatrists and they're all each other's patients and it's sort of from an outsider's perspective can get sort of ridiculous but if you're in the show beat to beat it does some really daring stuff including the second season finale which i won't spoil but considering he didn't know he was going to get a third season and all of his history told him he wasn't going to get a third season he basically almost extinguishes the entire series And I have no idea how it's going to pick up, but he's planning to remix the novel Hannibal and Hannibal Rising into a third season that's going to actually predate Red Dragon and then Silence of the Lambs. So it's going to be an interesting ride if Brian Fuller can hold on. And it's looking good 
because Amazon was really circling the show before it got picked up. So it looks like even if NBC chickens out and decides not to go in this horror direction, Amazon might swoop in and let Brian Fuller oh complete God. his full adaptation vision. Worst trend of, of the past two years. Well, I mean, other shows. places rescuing shows. That's, op- really? that's opening up a Pandora's box because I know yeah, Dave that could has be a some whole serious, other topic. Serious thoughts of this, but yeah, I can't stand this. I just let shows die. You only let say that because you don't want to see Community go on. Well, that's just one reason, but I, I <laughs> it just seems so boring. It's it's exactly like let's make every movie based on a cartoon or a superhero. It's like every new programming, like Netflix and Amazon have the chance to do their own thing and they're going to just revive old shows. It's boring. Yeah, I mean, but it's going to make us hypocrites because we also said maybe independent filmmakers should stop making independent films. I definitely did not say that, so screw you. I mean, Uh, I'm just saying. (laughs) Patches, I want to give you the opportunity to walk back that negativity and talk about something else you would like to put up for people's consideration. Well, you know, I don't watch a ton of new television. Certainly this past season of The Good Wife. I mean, I've I've tooted the horn about Good Wife so many times and I feel um, like I'm overdoing it, but I really can't say enough about uh, everything this show kind of put forward uh, in, and, and so late into its lifespan, um, I need to look up if this is the f- fourth or fifth season. This watching The Good Wife in one big swoop. I think it might be like the sixth. No, I think it might be the fifth time. season. But uh, let me double check that after I'm done ranting here. But um, like a show this far into its life, I feel like, especially one that kind of uses the procedural format, could really just fall back into case of the week kind of stuff but there's so many characters it's juggling and it's so concerned with continuing to evolve this main female character who you know in the in the first season of the show it was all about her dealing with her um what was his actual job he was i don't know in charge of the governor no he wasn't governor no 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 he was um in charge of the lawyers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for the state the attorney general the da yeah attorney general yeah 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 or i think he was the da uh anyway you know he had the big scandal and he had an affair and it could have i you know that's the reason i didn't watch it i just thought it was so ripped from the headlines boring um and it was on cbs it's like the ultimate it's like the scarlet letter of of television you don't watch anything on cbs because you're a self-respecting human um and the show is just so good it continues to challenge um juliana margulies's character and and what she wants in the world you know she was a housewife and she went back to being a lawyer after so many years that's everything that happens in the first season and now she's running her own firm like she's really dominated the world she's become a go-getter she was so quiet and a background player in the first season and now she's the most vicious person out there and having all these major i mean they're kind of twists twist is the wrong word it sends the wrong message this was just like a major curveball. Someone in your life can die suddenly, and this show had the balls to do it. I mean, it was prompted by Josh Charles wanting to leave the show, but they just killed him off. And how does that affect everyone? Uh, well, it means we get Matthew Good being an amazing supporting character, um, who's also just a bumbling oaf. He was so silly on this show. So yeah, I, I think that it's operating on a different level. I mean, it's still kind of case of the week, just to throw more chaos into it. And that's what the focus of this season has been. Chaos and big operatic drama, uh, exemplified by the music that's backing it. I, I'm on Twitter all the time talking about the music in this show is just so awesome. It's it's um, They found a way to use these high drama Baroque strings and... 
I I just it's it's better than everything that Breaking Bad put forward in terms of like putting next level music out there. It's just big and crazy and fun. Um and I I can't go to bat for it enough. I really think it's something special. And also um form-wise, you know, we see a lot of television. You know, Law and Order was never doing anything special or crazy with its kind of routine directing i don't think anyone walked away saying like man did you see this shot in the last week's law and order episode you never have that conversation i have that conversation every week for the good wife and i find that quite exhilarating because it's not hbo and it's not amc and it's not the cable networks that we go to all the time or the same shows we're always talking about so good wife i like that i like that uh, that vision because what you're talking about is a procedural that has managed to transcend itself and it sounds like it's working. Yeah, well, I think it keeps cutting itself off at the knees so that it has to figure out how to... Every every scene is like physical therapy after something traumatizing. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well, that's a, good way to, that's a good way to get to your conclusion if you have some, some you have ground one. to cover. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, um, I'm looking at the Daytime Emmy nominations, which were released last month. And Dave, do you realize that neither... The Legend of Korra, which we do a podcast about called Republic City Dispatch. Check that out. Uh, or Adventure Time are nominated for anything? Um, No, that's unfortunate. Korra should at least be on there. Adventure Time, I'm not sure how they split that 52-episode fifth season. So I don't know if oh. it's even in this year. Or if it might have hit the gap between five and six. Adventure Time is next level... It's it's insane. It, what, yeah, what it's it is doing, getting really good again. It is well, not that it ever got bad. It is Harry Potter. It is Harry Potter in animated television form, uh, and by that I mean when it first started, it was for small children and telling very kind of aloof stories, silliness, and now mm. it is going into such dark places about abandonment and familial issues and becoming a... a man. And oh my god, it is is incredible and this season too the season just started like weeks after last season ended so yeah who knows how that falls into emmy consideration but if you're not watching this show i've I've hooked many people who do not watch cartoons quote unquote onto it and they're happy yeah it's i think a more apt comparison would be uh looney tunes even further back is something that started for kids but then the weird thing about looney tunes i was discussing this with somebody at work the other day, but because it was syndicated when we were in our youth, all of our, you know, animation staples, like if you run off a cliff and don't look down, you won't fall. Like all those tropes were implanted in us from Looney Tunes. And I really think that we're seeing a group of uh, adults translate video games and symbols into a new cartoon for children. And that's sort of like being echoed back and it's combating SpongeBob symbology, which was thoughtless. And I think it's actually a, an important cartoon as well as a good one. Katie, what are you oh. watching? What did I miss? Yeah. Not by I... not watching like any television this season. House? Well, are you watching like House? Did... No, I don't know. I, I don't think House is on anymore. <laughs> I don't actually. Um, I don't think we talked about Mad Men at all. Am I no, let's talk about Mad Men because yeah. so you think I want to talk to you about Mad Men. Actually, start watching Mad Men since I've never seen a single episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not going to hook you the same way that Breaking Bad would. Or it's a poem, it patches. Like Ooh, I love it poems. I mean, Mad Men, I have found infuriating. I know that uh, this time last year or whenever the last season ended, I had an argument with David over whether or not the last season of Mad Men was even good because. 
I was completely fed up with Don Draper, and I thought that uh, Matthew Weiner, the creator of the show, had really bought into the myth of Don Draper to a to an extent that was destructive to the show. I didn't. I thought he was the least interesting character on the show. Kind of watching him spiral up and spiral down and get his life back together had gotten boring. But this past season, I thought did a really good job of continuing to tell that story of Don and continuing to tell the myth of this guy who is hanging in there despite the 60s changing around him, but also making the show about its other characters. And it had great arcs for Sally Draper. And it brought friggin' Bob Benson back, who I love. And I was so happy to have him have one episode and kind of had this whole fascinating life in the corners of it and had great things going on for Pete Campbell. And Yeah, where, I, were, like, where were you on Twitter when I said, I think I like season six because I hated season five? I, I mean, I was with you, but clearly not paying attention to Twitter. I just thought that Mad Men really pulled itself together and really took advantage of its ensemble in a specific way. And it kind of got rid of a lot of things that weren't working for the show. It ended, well, see, now I'm tempted not to spoil it for Patches anymore, but whatever. Well, I mean, it's hard to spoil because it's like not like Breaking Bad in the sense that we're so close to the end. But it feels like it's going to lower us into like a melancholy or a right. greater it, understanding of life more than it's going to be like. And then blank gets shot. Right. I, the, yeah, amazing yeah, thing about, the amazing thing about Mad Men is having not watched it and planning on you know, kind of binging it before this final stretch is that um, I don't know anything that's happened. I seriously have no idea about Mad Men or any like the the spoilery twists or things that I should avoid. I really, other than that lawnmower thing, whatever happened there, like someone got... Which is like the least important thing. Right. Yeah, it's the least important I, Right, thing. exactly. I have no idea what happened, which is exciting. And I'm like, I'm glad that this is spoiler proof because that that's, to me, the sign that it's something special and, and transcendent. Well, that's it's, the benefit of the kind of show that it is, where it's not about the plot the way Breaking Bad was. And that's something that I find frustrating about the show sometimes, is that I feel like it is just kind of being like, let's explore man's in, like dissatisfaction with the world around him, which I feel like we've been doing in circles. No, you can never do that season. enough. Well, I mean, but, the, fir- no. the first season really drowns in that, too. I'm sorry, Katie, yeah. I keep interrupting you. Well, no, I, I mean, I think it's still doing that. Like, at the end of this season has been about, I mean... It, one of the best episodes of the season was Peggy kind of pitching this uh, fast food restaurant that was kind of about the difference between the life that's advertised to you on television and the one that you actually have and bridging that gap. And I thought that was getting back to what Mad Men is really about. It's about the difference between what ads, what life ads think you should have and how at the beginning of the 60s there was this you know Eisenhower era sense of what domestic life should be and how that started to collapse and change over the course of the 60s and how we were watching it change really specifically for these particular characters and watching them then get back to that and kind of have this renewed sense of purpose of why they started making the show not just about the costumes and about watching Don Draper brood was really exciting to me yeah and then I also think that because it's freed from not being a plot heavy show when things like the other woman show up or Lane's plot line from Mm -hmm. last season I feel those are like it's the show getting too close to things like Game of Thrones where those plot moments become the reason to tune in, whereas I think Mad Men has the luxury now of ending on its own terms, and it's really settled into it this last season. And it might be slow for some people. The viewership's gone down, but I really enjoy it because I think it's found this Matthew Weiner pocket where he fun- finally realizes what he wants to be writing at the exact right time. It, it, yeah, I mean, it, they're trying the Breaking Bad thing where they're splitting the final season into two parts, which is not really paying off for them so far. Like, fewer people are watching it, like you said. But I don't think that really matters, and I think Mad Men has lent them this 
kind of era of prestige that they wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, Breaking Bad might not have become people. People might not have paid attention to it the same way they did if it, Mad Men hadn't been there already. And God love them, Halt and Catch Fire isn't replacing it. So <laughs> they're treating it well. Is there is there any comedy or actually? I also am curious yeah. about. Are there any new shows that we dig? How from this new? past season? Like from this past season, yeah, like 2013. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I love. Brooklyn Nine-Nine does not work for me. I think we touched on this before, but yeah, we've talked I would about love it. that show if Andy Samberg weren't in it. And a lot of the new stuff I haven't caught. I know people are kind of, they dig Masters of Sex on Showtime. Um, mm-hmm. I liked Trophy Wife. But that got canceled, so that has no hope on ABC. Oh, we're just talking about what got what got canceled. Uh, not uh, not the what Amy, got canceled, the, but just like things that the Amy Schumer show just got picked up, and it, like, I think it had a great first season. And the second, second season second great season. too. Second season, yeah. Sorry, either way, but uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of something this season that had a really good first season, and I can't. I know. I mean, like yeah. Sleepy Hollow had a better first season than I thought it would have. That's not a positive. Okay. Well, I mean, positive. I'm trying to think about big network shows that... Well, Katie, you were going like to talk about dice. Orange is the New Black season one. I mean, we're kind of in the... We're knee-deep in season two. I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who have already watched all of season two. I've watched one episode, but... Um, Ooh, and what an episode to start on, but we can't talk about it. Oh, oh okay. What, what? What? Yeah, how does that work? When? When is the spoiler curtain pulled back on... Well, a, a show I mean, you can watch we're talking about shows eligible for this year's Emmys. Fair which enough. This, this current season, of I mean, we could black is not season. Season one is though, and I think yeah. it's going to be interesting because I, I think it got slotted in the comedy category, which it belongs in, eh. but that's not where I think its strengths are. Well, I, I mean, it definitely yeah it comes off as a com- if you have any laughs in your show, you're automatically a comedy by Emmy standards. It's funny though cuz I know I actually know a few writers on Orange is the New Black and they talk about like they hate being pigeonholed as a comedy or a drama. Like it they think it really undercuts what they do in the show and I can I feel their pain watching it because I like laughing but like to call something a comedy. I mean this is the problem with Louie or it's not the problem with Louie, it's the problem Louie faces with mainstream <laughs> viewers who either want straight comedy or they want their drama they want their tear jerking um and if you give them both it's hard to swallow but orange is the new black seems to be connecting with people which is good yeah yeah and then i think also in terms of just emmy weirdness since i don't know when else we're going to talk about this until you get to the emmys i think true detectives in miniseries with um, yeah. yeah that's, with, that's with the new craze american horror story yes yeah yeah which how is american horror series. story still considered a miniseries. I that's think that's the biggest hilarious shame. that they're still doing well, that. Well, I mean, it better be because then they could forget this third season happened. Oh, burn. Maybe. Well, see, it's weird because they got like the best ratings, but it was by far the weakest season. So it, it's going to be inter- It's going to lose to True Detective in every category. Burn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why are we even talking about other shows when True Detective is just going to be a... Uh... Katie, you should probably end by just saying something about Veep because I know you've been talking about talking about Veep on the show for like eight oh, years, yeah. but never talking about it. I still haven't finished this current season. There were two episodes that aired uh, on Sunday night that I haven't watched yet. But uh, this season, I kind of fell out of Veep for a little while and I started catching up with this season and it got so good. It got funnier. It got a more better sense of tone. The characters have been able to start emerging individually. It's still really, really mean, but it feels like a workplace, like a real place that 
you can kind of identify these characters and how they function in the world. And it raised the stakes. It has Selena Meyer running for president, and they bring back uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who played Clay Davis on The Wire, as one of uh, awesome. her uh, fellow contenders, yeah. which is great. Oh, it's so good. Like, there's so many, like, good brain of supporting parts from people stepping in for an episode or two, and then that ensemble has really coalesced around each other. And, again, I haven't finished the season, so I don't know how it ends, but – uh, Veep got really, really good, and I'm a huge, huge fan of In the Loop, so I guess it's no surprise that I got on board, but I find watching it so pleasurable now, and whereas before it kind of felt like, I know this is funny, I know that I should be enjoying it, but it, you felt kind of bad at the end of it, and now it's just straight up fun. I think that Veep should end by she gets sucked into a time vortex and becomes her character in Troll. That is one way to end it. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to talk about 22 Jump Street, Babylon Bonds and all. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet all over the place. I put everything on mattpatches.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And uh, remember, there are two ways to, uh, two great ways to communicate with us on the internet. You can either go on our website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where we put SoundCloud files as well now, according to Dave. Dave, am I getting that right? That's correct. Uh, And and there's comments, and we want you to leave comments and feedback and all that stuff. And we also are on Facebook, um, Fighting in the War Room, obviously, and and, uh, that's a great way to share things or comment or like stuff. Socially interact with us, please. All the things you can do on Facebook. Facebook technology (laughs) at our fingertips. God, there's so many platforms. It's the future. I'm Dave Gonzalez, and because it's the future, I spelled my first name D-A-7-E, but pronounce it Dave. Uh, That is my Twitter handle, and I'm supposed to tell you to call in at 914-410-6450 and tell us your song of the summer, because otherwise we're just going to play fancy for, like, an entire episode. So get on there, guys, and let us know what what other music is happening, please. And I am Katie Rich. I don't know what fancy is. I kind of know what it is, but I don't want to know. I write for Vanity Bears Hollywood. You can find me there or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-D-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find all of us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is... In honor of 22 Jump Street, what's the best meta moment in a film? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Katie, say, first things first, I'm the realist. I've listened to it like two just, times. Just, just say it. My, I, I refuse to bum, participate in the show. Bum, 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 bum. Do you like bum, that song? Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, who doesn't like Australian Nicki Minaj? <laughs> yeah. First things first, I'm the realest. Realest. Drop this and let the whole world feel it.